Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, we've got a bit of a doozy. Uh, I continue the Netflix and chat because there are no theaters to go to, uh, so I'll be covering The Willoughbys and Extraction, as well as The Midnight Gospel, uh, Cosmos, War of the Planets, and Middle Ditch and Schwartz, uh, most of which I saw on Netflix, the other one I saw with uh, Cinematic for the People, so... Uh, after that is a discussion on AMC's latest shenanigans. We're going to go deep into it. So let's get started. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. All right. So I was not too familiar with this book series, um, and I think this is based on a book series, or at least a singular book, but um, I do think the style for this. You've got uh, the director of Cloudy with the Trampets of Meatballs 2, who's also done animation work for, bo- I think, both DreamWorks, Disney, and, you know, other companies. So, I mean, this guy is a, is a consummate professional when it comes to the animation industry, and he actually did that thing kind of like um, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse did, where they slowed down the frame rate to make it look to make CG look like stop motion. It's a very interesting tactic that looks really neat when it's done well, and this does kind of make it look like uh, almost like a Leica film or an art one of those Ardman CG movies, but. Uh, yeah, the, I will say that the animation is the best thing about this movie. It is a masterfully crafted animated movie. That said, it's the story that doesn't really hook me in. Uh, the cast is fine. Uh, Ricky Gervais isn't bad. I'll say that much. He doesn't suck, but he's also Ricky Gervais. So, you know, if you can't stand his smarmy, self-righteous voice, then y- yeah, you're not going to like him much here either. Honestly, I think they should have gone with like an Eddie Izzard or uh, maybe a Tim Minchin for that voice. I don't know why they went with Ricky Gervais. I don't know why people like Ricky Gervais. He's an asshole. But anyway. Um, but the, the other cast, you've got Will Forte as the main kid. Alessia Cara is his sister. You've got Martin Short and Jane Krakowski as their parents. Uh, Maya Rudolph is the nanny. And then Terry Crews is basically this like... This this Willy Wonka esque candy ma- candy general or corporal or something. He's basically dolled up in like a candy colored uh, military outfit, and he's a he runs a factory that spouts rainbows. Um, but the premise here is the Willoughbys are a legacy family, and for generations they had ma- gigantic mustaches. And were, they went on grand adventures and accrued a massive amounts of wealth. And this current generation, though, the parents uh, don't like the mom doesn't have a mustache at all, and the dad barely has has the Gomez Adams like really pencil thin mustache. And they're they're basically living off the past, you know, successes of their family members, and only care about. Like, somebody pointed it out that this is basically like if Gomez Adams, Gomez and Morticia Adams were really awful parents. 
Like, if they were just the worst pair, like, if they lo- they, have the, they have the amount of love and its devotion to each other that Gomez and Morticia Adams do, but they can't, but they absolutely cannot stand the, the fact that they have children, which I don't know why they kept the children at all, but, you know, kids' movie logic doesn't matter. Um, but at any rate, they, ma- they have uh, Timothy, I believe, uh... I think Jane, I, 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 once again, the names don't really stick with me, but uh, they have the oldest son, played by Will Forte, Alessia Cara as, his, as the sister, and then a set of twins, uh, both named Barnaby because they couldn't be bothered to come up with a second name. And they're just the, the most hyperbolic level of neglectful parents. They absolutely could not care less about the the fact that they have children and and oh throughout the course of the movie even when it tries to pull at your heartstrings and be like we're you know we we may not like we may not you know like each other all that much but we're still family even then the the parents could just genuinely do not care about these kids they just could not care they could not be bothered to care about these kids and so yeah they're wholly reliant on the fact that they're um their family history is has done all the hard work for them and now it and so the oldest son is trying to relive those glory days but he's under the boot heel of the neglectful parents who barely even feed them and will punish them by throwing them into a coal uh, to the furnace room and sit sit amongst the coal you know the charcoal and um or i guess the coal lumps not charcoal it's different but uh it really is just like uh, that's the worst. And so the kids come up with a plan to get rid of their parents, orphan themselves, as it as they put it, uh, by sending their parents off on an adventure by themselves without any kids, and send them to the most dangerous places in the world in the hopes that one of the one of those places will get them killed. They do, and so they plan to get you know they it's kind of like a little bit of Lemony Snicket's uh, thrown in in that regard too. So they manage to send off the parents, and the parents leave them with a nanny, who is played by Maya Rudolph, and is very, you know, lovable, affable, and, um, you know, just genuinely cares about these kids, and wants to have, you know, basically is the closest thing to a mother that they've ever had. And the only one who doesn't like him is Will Forte's character, the oldest son, who thinks she's in the way of them, of him, because he, he pictured himself as the new head of the household, and he's in charge now, and the nanny is an adult and she can't be trusted. And so most of the movie is him spent wanting to get rid of the nanny because he wants to be in charge and he doesn't like adults. But, um, as time goes on, the kids all really grow to love the nanny and, uh, they, you know, the the plot is a bit all over the place. I I mentioned in um, my letterbox review that it kind of feels like this should have been a TV series and it should have gone for like 10 episodes or something like that. But it was all crammed into a single movie. And so everything is just like boom, 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 boom. So like there's a bit with an orphan baby that they have to take to the fact to the that they take to a place um, at the end of the rainbow, which turns out to be a candy factory. And then they come back and they have and they come up with a, and on their way back, they come up with the plan to send the parents off and orphan themselves. And then the nanny comes in. And so then it becomes all about, you know, learning to, lo- you know, the rest of the kids loving the nanny and uh, Tim not being into it. And then eventually uh, they go eventually they find, you know, they mentioned that the 
the, about the baby, and so they go to the candy factory, and the nanny helps Terry Crews' character to help, you know, to help him out with uh, the baby, because he absolutely adores the little baby uh, and wants to keep her, but... And then they go, but then they go back, and on the way back, there's there's this um, miscommunication about um, the parents wanting to sell the house and stay on stay on adventuring, and so the kids uh, the kids think the nanny is uh, you know against is working with the parents who are then trying to sell the house, and then there's a whole bit with like the home alone it's like a home alone thing where they scare off people you know would be buyers of their fancy house and then eventually there's like child services coming into the picture and it's a whole lot to take in it is a lot crammed into a single movie and i think that's the biggest problem is that there is so much plot crammed into this tiny little movie and i can't and it goes by so fast that i kind of lose interest just because it's like oh, uh, oh, oh, oh okay now we're doing okay and, and and it's done oh okay sure i guess like the pacing in this is way too fast that's why i'm thinking this would have been better suited for like a series rather than a singular film or anything else cut back on what how much is in the film itself i don't know but yeah it's just just so much crammed into one movie and it's hard to really enjoy a lot of it. I mean, it, it, like, Alessia Carr is best known as a singer and she only gets to sing, like, one song in the whole thing and the rest of the time it's just, like, her singing with her headphones on. Alessia, stop singing. You're singing You're singing with your headphones on again. It's, it's yeah. But once again, nothing about this is bad. It just feels really sloppy. And it, I think that kind of fine-tuning it and, you know, coming... and that, But that all that stems back to the script side of things. The animation side of things is masterful. It's the script side of things that really ha is kind of, like, manic and, uh, you know, really needs to slow down and, like, let us enjoy the, what we're seeing. But that's just me. So yeah, The Willoughby's is not bad. Um, as far as, you know, animation on Netflix goes, like, Netflix has been really good. Klaus and uh, Green Eggs and Ham and, um, you know, so many other, other other series are good, but then also just, like, their animated movies are solid. So Netflix has been going, doing good about uh, producing really solid animated quality. Uh, continuing along with Netflix's stuff, uh the Russo brothers are continuing to try and figure out what they're doing post MCU. And, um, this one comes is is, uh, written by them and produced by them based on a graphic novel. They wrote called, uh, Ciudad, uh, which is, I think, uh, Spanish for city. Uh, it's, it's Spanish. Cause I, and I think it takes place in like either Mexico or somewhere in Latin America. And the premise is a uh, mercenary is hired on to rescue these, the, in the book it's a daughter, in the movie here it's a son, but the child of a drug kingpin who has been kidnapped by, by a competing drug kingpin. And it's along the way, uh, along the way they're, um, they, they're stuck in the city on lockdown as this competing drug kingpin has so much control over the over the city that and the police and everything that there's no way for and they, you know they're basically it's kind of like a, a bit of escape from New York vibes 
um, a tad, but uh, you know, fo- but with like instead of rescuing the president, it's rescuing a, a little kid. And um, the 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 it stars Chris Hemsworth and uh, is actually directed by uh, the stunt choreographer who worked on both Infinity War and Endgame. I think he also worked on Civil War. But, no, he didn't work on Infinity War. He worked on Civil War and then Endgame. Um, I forget his name, though. Uh, let me pull it up real quick. Uh, suffice to say that uh, the, the stunt director turned... Um, the stunt choreographer turned director isn't necessarily new. The guys behind John Wick uh, are are known for, um, started, got their start out in, uh, doing stunt choreography and they eventually worked their way up to, uh, directing. And that's basically what this guy did. Sam Hargrave is the name. And, uh, they've changed the setting from Latin America or Mexico or wherever the, 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 the graphic novel has been so long out of print that it basically costs like a hundred dollars at minimum to try and get a copy. And it's not, I honestly don't think it's worth that much, but, um, they moved that to, uh, India. It's an Indian drug kingpin and the son is taken to Bangladesh. Uh, and the, and most of the movie is shot in, you know, Southeast Asia. I forget here. I forget where exactly. Um, Where's the uh, feeling? Here we go. Uh, Ahmedabad, India, Dhaka, some Bangladesh, and some because you know most of it takes place in Dhaka, I think, and then the actual like location, like street level location shooting, seems to have taken place in Ahmedabad, India. But um, yeah, the premise is still pretty much the same. Chris Hemsworth has to go in uh, and bring this bring this kid in alive. Along the way, like there's a former uh, henchman for the kid's dad who is basically left, left who knows that they're not going to get any money for rescuing the kid, and he needs money to keep his family afloat. And so he goes in to deliver the kid to the kingpin to get the reward, or because there's a reward out for the kid's head. Um, There's a whole lot of convoluted uh, storylines going on. And um, I will say that the storyline is probably the weakest point. Uh, I think uh, Hemsworth's character is just basically generic badass. He's not really interesting all that much. They try to give him a tragic backstory, but but ultimately it doesn't really matter. Uh, the kid is alright. Um, the kid manages to have a bit of a personality. He's like this dorky son of the son of a kingpin. He's not like act, he's not trying to pretend to be tough. He's just like I'm. A, he's just basically a, you know a rich kid teen, and he's like I just you know, I just you know I, I pro- you know like one the when he's being kidnapped he's smoking I, I'm not sure if it's a regular cigarette or it's been implied to be like a pot cigarette to like a, to be like a joint. And he's doing this over in, uh, he's doing this when the police find him. And it's like, I, I just don't want any trouble, man. I just like, he's just being a dumb kid. And so he's, you know, I think having him stuck in this scenario is interesting. And it's everyone else is just kind of like so tough. And like the only other character that's really all that compelling is da- uh, David Harbour plays a associate of Chris Hemsworth that he meets along the way, and I think his bit is actually really is actually really interesting, but it ultimately doesn't really like 
sell the movie either. It's yeah, like like I said, this is the plot and the and the story and the characters are not going to sell this movie. What does sell this movie is the action, which is John Wick levels of amazing. The camera work is top notch. You're coming, you're you're coming, zooming in and panning and going through cars on a chase scene. It's very kinetic, and then it never it knows when to cut away to do, to a different shot. It lets the shots, it lets the action move organically. It never, I I call it hibachi cutting sometimes, but it's basically that quick level of cutting. You know, it's just like. You can barely get a second to go by before you change the shots. And it's, it really is just feels like a lazy way to get around the fact that you didn't take the time to do good choreography or shoot good, the choreography well. And this guy really knows his stuff. Uh, Hargrave, I'm very interested to see if he can get a John Wick-level script to go along with his action, because he is a phenomenal action director. And the choreography is phenomenal. Like, there's a bit in here where... Uh, there's a group of kids, you know, like street urchins, who are basically trying to get in with the drug kingpin because they, that'll give them money. And so they gang up on Chris Hemsworth, and Chris Hemsworth has to deal with the fact that I'm fighting a bunch of kids. And so he refuses to kill the kids, unlike the uh, drug kingpin, but he still beats the level living crap out of them. He'll like slam them against a car door, slam them one, slams one through the window. Um... He, like, flips them over, <laughs> kicks them around, smacks one across the face. I think he backhands one, one at some point. Like, the choreography with those kids is phenomenal. Like, the way they shoot it, like, you, it, you, like, you don't expect it either. So, like, there's a point where it just goes to the... It's where he's ganged up by these kids, and he just got to... He realizes there's no other way forward, so he has to kick these kids' ass. And he does it so beautifully. It is amazing. There's even a cool bit where um, where he first uh, uh, rescues the rescues the drug kingpin son, and there's like a hole in the wall from a from a like a, an explosion. And so one of the kidnappers is trying to shoot at him, and he and uh, Hemsworth kicks the guy into the hole into like the top part of the hole in the wall, and then he falls through. Like the use of the space is is really well done like it's so it's such masterful choreography and if nothing else just like you can skip through the story bits because they don't matter watch the action it is absolutely amazing action use of great use of the environment um great like gun shoots chase the chase scenes with the cars are great it really is a, a phenomenal action movie it's just it just really doesn't, you know, it, the, the story is not the Russo's best. Like, the Russo's, I think, wrote some of the best stories for the MCU, personally speaking. And for some reason, I guess they just wanted to kind of play up the action here. So they didn't, they, aren't, they weren't trying to write the next, you know, great American action movie. It's just, hey, let's have a fun action movie. And so they weren't really concerned about, like, a, a really good story. And we're just writing, you know, the usual stuff you expect from this kind of thing. So, yeah, the the, the plot is very tropey and predictable. And it's not very interesting. Like, even the villains are very interesting. I feel like if they either should have left him ambiguous and only see him as, like, the final boss in the, in the, in the thing. Or make him more dynamic. Make him more of, like, a supervillain level, like, insane. Instead of just, like, generic drug kingpin villain. Like, he really isn't all that interesting. 
and yeah, it's it's something, all right. Uh, so I would say this once again: extraction. If you're if you want a really good action movie, you can skip through the boring bits and just watch the really cool action fight choreography and camera work and stunt work. This really was like top notch stuff. I this is why stunt people and choreographers need like recognition from the Oscars or something. Just because just as part even as part of like the technical awards because they put in when they put in the work, it is masterfully done. So. Yeah, extraction not amazing, but I don't. I'm not. I you know I don't. Ha- but I still had enough fun to recommend it to people. Now, one that I can't recommend and I actually actively disliked uh, was Midnight Gospel, and I don't know. Like I know that there are the, it has its fans out there, especially since it's Pendleton Ward who has a very devoted fan base just from Adventure Time alone, and he's a really you know he's not a bad animator or an an artist but it's just i did not like this at all and the premise is interesting it basically takes the interviews from duncan trussell's podcast and gives them an anime you know animates you know these vignettes around the interviews so like the first episode is him interviewing is from an interview trussell did with dr drupinski not the one I would have led with, but I'm sure they didn't know, you know, they weren't, you know, this is before, they were, I, 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 I mean, it's only really now that people are starting to catch on that Pinsky is a, a grifter of the highest order, and so, yeah, it's, I don't know, like, I think that's a bad, it was already a bad start by picking some, some guy who was already out of himself as a grifter, <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, I think my problem is that, Compared to Adventure Time, which is a lot more fluid and professional, this feels unfinished. It feels like almost an animatic of something that they wanted to do more with, but then gave up halfway through, either because the money ran out or the time ran out or they just got lazy and said, eh, screw it. So it's it's very... It's mo- basically almost like it's all done through keyframes and there's almost like no in-betweens for the animation. And if that was the artistic decision he went with, I don't think it does all that much. Like, it doesn't feel like a re- an artistic decision. It feels more like, eh, I'm, I'm too high to... <laughs> it feels like I'm tired from, you know, the uh, edible I took. So I'm gonna, I'm not going to worry about the in-betweens. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. This, I mean, the fact that it was released on 420 tells you everything. And... I just, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, that's the thing. I can enjoy certain things that are considered, like, stoner, quote-unquote, culture. Things like um, uh, Half-Baked is still, I still had fun with that movie, even though I'm not a stoner. Uh, a lot, you know, some of the music uh, is, is still fine. Like, I don't listen to jam band stuff all the time, but, I mean, it's not bad. I, I, don't, I don't actively hate the music at all. And, I mean, like, it's, it's just the... There's a way to go about it and still make a good thing. It's just when you rely on the fact that um, you have to enjoy it while intoxicated in some regard, then you made a bad thing. If you if you can't enjoy it sober, then you made a bad thing. If you have to, if your brain has to be buggered in order to enjoy a thing, you made a bad thing. And yeah, just. 
it feels almost pandering in that regard. It feels like it's weird for its own sake and it doesn't really matter. And that's the thing is like, I love the idea of animating new segments to existing audio. Um, Shorty's watching Shorty's. I, I hated the in-between stuff with, uh, uh, Nick DiPaolo and Patrice O'Neill. I don't think we needed the babies narrating to and basically just like having Patrice and Nick try to improv off of each other, but then always emphasize the fact that, oh, by the way, I'm a baby. I am in fact a baby. Yes, I am in fact a baby. I think just having the animated segment, taking stand-up comedy and then animating the bits to give them like visuals is was really cool especially like some of the dane cook bits and um there's a really good one they did of oh oh god what's his name uh oh god um he's uh uh, i I can't remember his name damn it he's he's a bit bigger in the in like the early aughts but he's still like this hilarious comic uh let me see Ah, uh, God, that's gonna bug me. Uh, here we go. Let's pull up the IMDb. They'll have the comics listed. Episode guide. Uh, let me see. Was it episode one? One of these episodes was gonna have it. Uh, but yeah, they did Dane Cook. They would animate, uh, Janine Garofalo bits, Gilbert Godfrey bits, some Richard Jenny, uh, Brian Regan bits. Like, the animated bits are fu- are great. It's when they cut back to Nick DiPaolo and Patrice O'Neill, quote-unquote, acting like they're babies, that it's really, you know, lame and un- unfunny. Uh, but the stuff, when they animated the stand-up bits, it was hilarious. Like, it was fantastic. Um, Dom Herrera. I, 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 it was like, I couldn't figure out. The guy's name, Dom Herrera, is the comic. And there's a really great an- animated, uh, they animated one of his bits, which is basically about how um, his cousin, who's like this fat hunk of shit, is hiding, is covering his drink. He's like, you gotta watch out, man. They're gonna pull roofies in it. And it's like, who's gonna pull roofies in your drink? <laughs> you fat tub of shit. Um, you may know him as Duke the Dog from Barnyard in the Back of the Barnyard series. He was Tony the Chauffeur in Big Lebowski. And, um, he's, uh, what else has he been in? Uh, he's always, wait, Ernie Potts. Who's Ernie? Which one's Ernie Potts? He's in, uh, Hey Arnold. Who is Ernie Potts? Oh, Ernie Potts. Oh my God. The little short dude. Uh, The little short dude, Ernie Potts. That was played by Dom Herrera. Huh. Neat. But yeah, uh, I love the, I love the concept of that show. I mean, this goes all the way back to freaking Fantasia. Fantasia was like one of the first ones to really add visuals to an audio, to, you know, to an audio track. And um, like, there's a great YouTube channel called uh, Nick. Mur- uh, there's a guy named Nick Murray Willis who animates commentary from like all kinds of sports stuff and then reinterprets them based on what they're saying. So it'll take like um, you know, football comment, you know, like. Uh, 
in international football commentary or British football commentary uh, and like w- some of the words they're saying to help make it look like oh it's some it's somebody talking about their wife or it's some people at a restaurant and it's just like he reincorporates the words to make it to change this meaning but it's all the old existing audio so I mean this concept is a, not a bad concept it's just they half-assed it and it, even by the end of the series they don't care about the conceit that it's not Duncan Trussell playing a character of Clancy. By the end of the, by the last episode, they just give up and just refer to him as Duncan throughout the throughout the episode. They just don't care anymore. And it would be one thing if the animation like enhanced the interviews, like instead of like the first episode has Drew Pinsky as the president of this alternate Earth, but they're talking about drugs. So why not make him like a drug dealer, you know, and instead of making him making this, you know, in-depth discussion about like the one time it really worked was they interviewed um, one of my favorite people. uh, uh, What's her name? Uh, She does. uh, She does a a whole YouTube channel. She was on. um, she was on uh, Ask a Mortician. Uh, she was also on the the uh, Adam Ruins Death episode of Adam Ruins Everything. And um, I forget her name. Uh, her name's not listed for some reason on her thing. But um, uh, Trussell interviewed her to um about the death about you know because she's an expert she's kind of like the go-to expert on the death industrial complex in america and so when he interviews and so that interview was then turned into clancy who is this you know loser earthling who's out in space in the universe trying to record a podcast and it's like yeah, I mean, it's kind of, di- <laughs> I mean, I get that dig. It's not, that part's not bad, but it never really sticks with it. And Clancy's just kind of an asshole. Like, I, I genuinely do not like Clancy as a character. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I just wanted to finish, um, when he, you know, during that inter- that interview uh, with Death, you know, once again, this mortician who is best known for talking about Death is playing literally Death. And that's the only time it really worked. Otherwise, it's just ra- like the one they interviewed, like some activists, and this is, there's this interview with these activists, but they're random, like deer cow monsters that are turned into a meat and then filled into a mold, so they become these meat homunculi. And all this, all the time that all this madness is going on, they're just talking about you know stuff, stuff here on Earth. Like the interviews do not feed the animations do not feed into the interviews. They don't enhance the, the only one that really enhanced the interviews were the last two, the one about death and the one where Duncan interviews his mom. And other than that, it's just Pendleton being having his buddies be weird and come up with these weird things that have absolutely nothing to do with the audio that they're that they're you know match you know that they're singing up to, and it's just. Yeah, I mean, maybe the interv- maybe Duncan Trussell's podcast is fine, but I don't care about it at this point. Like, sitting through the Midnight Gospel made me never want to sit through any episodes of his podcast. 
I just made me hate the idea of listening to anything more from him because he's because I was introduced to Duncan Trussell through the through his character of Clancy, who is a narcissistic little shit who absolutely somebody should beat the crap out of to knock some sense into his thick skull. Yeah, just he is an asshole through and through. And I do not like he's not a redeemable. I mean, that's the thing. Not all assholes have to be redeemable, but you have to you know, care about them in some regard. They have to give you something to latch onto. Here, he's just a piece of shit le- leeching off of his family, and he just. It, and then by the end of the series, it doesn't even matter because they dropped that conceit so that Duncan, so they could just do Duncan's interview with his mom. Uh, it, yeah, this is genuinely like one of the least favorite things I've watched on Netflix. I. Could not stand it in the slightest. It feels exactly like those stoner kids you knew in high school who say the only way to enjoy X thing has to be while you're high because they can't imagine a time when they aren't high. You know, the fact that they can't do something sober is a detriment to themselves because that's the thing. You can get you you can get high if you want to. You can leave your friends behind because your friends get high, and if they get high, then they're no, I, I don't know where I was going with that. But um, like I'm you know I'm friends with uh people who partake of the ganj and <laughs> of the wacky tabacky of the devil's lettuce, but I was never interested in it because I nothing about it really seemed like it was up my alley. But the friends I'm with now who partake in it, it's it doesn't define their personality. It's just a thing. It's basically the kind of thing you take, you know, like some, some people will drink a glass of wine before, you know, to calm down. And, and my friends, you know, will take, take a little hit to calm down. It's just, you know, it's more like just a, a mellower for them. And, uh, it's a, you know, it's a depressant to kind of like, kind of chill them out. And, so their 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 whole personality is not defined by the fact that they smoke weed, and even my brother and his and his friends in high school, like they would you know do stupid stuff, but like they had other fat you know, and they would partake in you know not just weed but other stuff, but they would also be like into skateboarding and ska music and like all these other things. They would have other things going on in their lives besides take besides getting high. It's the fact that this feels like those assholes who can't, who always have to talk about being high because they can never imagine a time when they aren't being high because apparently they they think that's the equivalent of having a personality. But nah, nah, man, Midnight Gospel, fine. If you en- once again, if you enjoyed it, have at it, go enjoy it. <laughs> I just won't be along there with you because I did not like it one bit. And the last thing I watched on Netflix, cutting around a bit, uh, I watched the middle edition of Schwartz. I did not hate it as much as um, as uh, Midnight Gospel, but it does. It, it's cringy in the way that you, you know. Um, I haven't had this happen to me personally. But I'm friends with a lot of folks who ha- who are within like comedic circles, and I think I've mentioned I mentioned this in uh, when I covered the Astronomy Club show for Netflix that um, yeah I, I became acquaintances and like online buddies with uh, James the Third, and so I would hear through him, and then of course other comics will talk about how they'll have friends 
who take in, take part in improv troops. And there's an ongoing uh, the trope of people who friend people in comedy who have friends who, who do improv. And you were invited to do, and they invite you to do one of to one of their improv shows, and it's the like most mm, uncomfortable thing because you're not you're watching them just like trying to be funny off the top of their head, and th- the, most of them aren't even as good as Thomas Middleditch and Ben Schwartz, but even Ben, but even even guys who are as good as Middleditch and Schwartz are in terms of improv. Sit, you're still watching three hours of of your buddy's improv show. And no matter what, you're always going to have that uncomfortable feeling like, mm, yeah, like this is, this sure is something, all right? You know, hey, I mean, they start each episode with asking the audience for setups for stuff that they'll do throughout the show. And they'll, you know, pluck little things here and there. Like, it's good improv. I'm just sick of goddamn improv. <laughs> I am genuinely sick. Like, here's the thing. Improv comedy has become like the end-all be-all. It has become, in terms of cooking, it has become the stock that you cook the soup in. When good improv used to be the spices and the seasonings that you would augment the soup with. The stock was still the written jokes. You would have these written standard jokes, and then the improv would be like, bang, boom, bing, bow, and like add some kick to it. Improv has now become the stock of the soup, and it's a very, very terrible stock. You do not want to have the base of your soup or your stew be something as weak as as unpredictable and as 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 you know variable as improv because that's the thing improv even at its best is still not as good as really great comedy like like I bring this up all the time astronomy club I'm assuming most of the bits were written down rehearsed Try gone through multiple drafts, and then there's little bits of improv thrown in. That's that's how you make a good thing. You go through drafts. You find out what works. You find out what doesn't work. You cut the stuff that doesn't work, and you focus on the stuff that does work. Improv is just everything. It's 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 all the fat without hardly any of the good meat, and it's just. I, I, I'm so, I'm kind of over improv. Like, like that's the thing. Uh, I, I, I started the Let's Play channel. And a lot of that is stream of consciousness. But I'm not trying to do, like, improv comedy bits. And then even, like, I love Danny and Aaron over on Game Grumps. But most of this, you know, they're still doing stream of consciousness conversations. And then every so often, they'll make jokes at each other. So it's improvisational, but the meat, but once again, the stock of the soup is stream of consciousness conversations between two friends. And then the improv is the little bits that they're thrown in. And then the meat of it, it the, the, the stock of the soup is not the improv. The improv is the seasoning. And too many times in comedy, we are... You know, they think there's, I think the problem is Second City, all these people from Second City and uh, Upright Citizens Brigade and all these other improv troops, 
have now since dominated the industry and they think, oh, everything has to be improv because that's how I was trained to do comedy. And so obviously that's way better because that's how I did it. And instead of just fine-tuning the craft and making things better, it's always like, what can we think of off the top of our heads? Go! And then, like, it's all fly by the seat of your pants, and then it's never any good. So, like, there are some bits in Middle Ditch and Schwartz that are, fu that are funny. Because, I mean, they're throwing everything at the wall. Something is going to stick, but I... Genuinely didn't care because I did. I was still feeling like I was sitting in in one of my in like I was invited to some friend's shitty improv troupe show, and I have to sit there and be like, "Yep, supporting my friend, supporting my friend here. Yep, yep, just doing this to help a friend. This is this kind of sucks, but I'm just be supportive, be supportive." <sighs> so yeah. um... Like, if you like these two guys, they're still funny guys. And, like, if you want to, you know, if give, give it a shot at least. But I I did not care for it. I was just waiting for it, for it to end. Not as much as I wanted to quit partway through, like, uh, Midnight Gospel. But it, thankfully, it was only three episodes, three specials. And I'm just like, okay, those are done. I never have to think about them again. Yeah, like, I... I'm just done with improv as like the end all be all for comedy. And I think we can just, I think we need to go back to the stock being good, you know, tried and tested joke that you go through multiple drafts to get a good base for. And then you can add in the improv. I think, I do think that like Second City, Upright Citizens Brigade, that whole improvisational style of comedy has tainted the industry, sadly. And we need to kind of gear away from it thankfully upright citizens brigade has shown themselves to be an absolute garbage uh organization so hopefully the next generation of comics of comedians won't have that have them tainting the the, the you know the 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 talent pool as it were uh anyway the last thing i watched was a little bit called a little movie called cosmos war of the planets no relation to the carl sagan show it is, in fact, Italian Star Wars. One of the four entries of Italian Star Wars. But this was the first one released in 1977. I watched this with the crew over at um, uh, Cinematic for the People, who I'm finally starting to get back into with after a couple of years when I did um, Killdozer and... Uh, and I did one of their live... A couple of their live shows... I did some live shows with them. Uh, I'm really glad to be like a little... Uh, you know, a new play, you know, a bit bringing back the, you know, the plays here. Because we did Snow Beast uh, last week, and this week it's Italian Star Wars. And, um, yeah, the official title is Ano Zero Guerra Nello Spazio, uh, which translates to Year Zero War, War Something Space. What is Nello? I'm not familiar with Nello. Um... Let me see. No, here, let's just do a quick Google Translate of that. Ba -ba -da -ba. Now, I need a Google Translate. Ah, come on. Here. Let's just take this bit, go to Google Translate. 
Why is it bringing up Babblefish? Is Babblefish still a thing? <laughs> anyway. Here we go. Uh, pop that in. Okay, just war in space. So, Guerra Nello Spazio is just war in space. So, Year Zero, War in Space is the name of the is the name of the movie. And um Yeah, it is Here's the thing. Um if you followed Channel Awesome back in the really early days, like right at the kickoff of it, you might remember some of the, some one of the guys, I think either uh Brad or I forget who, but covering things like Turkish ripoffs of Hollywood blockbusters. So there's like Turkish Star Wars or Turkish this, the, you know, you know, I think Turkish Rambo was, I think, something like that. Um, and so there's Italian, the Italians were, were, were notorious for doing the exact same thing. And so this is Italian Star Wars, but it is absolutely, has absolutely nothing to do with the plot of Star Wars. In fact, it is much more like a really badly attempted episode of the Star uh, episode of Star Trek. Um, the basic premise, for what I could glean, because you don't under you would never be able to understand the plot by watching the movie, is there's this cap there's this Captain Hamilton of the starship, and he is an absolute luddite who hates the fact that they have to rely on computers for things, and. He is, you know, so bad about it that he is actively being threatened with, like, court-martialing and being demoted and being, you know, re you know, removed of duty. And eventually he's sent on a trip to... I forget what, but if they along the way they encounter... They're attacked by these two uh, ships, they're damaged, and have to force a land... And are basically tractor-beamed onto a planet... That has that used to be inhabitable, but has long since become radioactive. And there's this underground city of silver-colored people who speak with telepathy because they're the and they're the last survivors of the species that lived on that planet. And it was taken over by an evil robot who forced the forced the ship down. In order to replace a single part in the robot's um, computing process, like he ba they ba he basically put it in a new uh, disc, not a di but not, not like a compact disc, but like a almost like a board, a circuit board into the robot, and that's the whole reason that this entire crew, this entire ship, was forced to land on this planet was for this one for this robot to have a single circuit board placed inside of it and replaced it's oh god it's so stupid but um yeah it, then there then there's a, then it's all about the planet's about to explode and then um they have to escape but then one of the silver people becomes an honorary crew member except there's like somehow the evil of the robot made its way onto the ship and they have to fight it and then the token token new alien who just joined the crew is left to die because the captain is an asshole. And it's just absolute. And then by, by the end of the movie, he's just declared to be right. Yes, yes, Captain, you are absolutely right about computers being wrong. Why? How? What? That, that never came up at any point during the course of the mission. How is he right? He was never right. He's just an asshole.
He's still the same asshole he was at the beginning of the movie. How are you see now that, like, the, aside from protagonist, the shield of the protagonist that he's just declared the good, right by the end, how is he right? God damn it. Uh, on top of that, everything is shot in dark. Like, everything is shot in the dark. Literally, you can't see a goddamn thing in this movie. They shoot everything in the dark. It's like, okay, I get it. You want it to make it look mysterious, but good lighting involves use of gels and colors and making sure that people can actually see what's happening. I can't see a goddamn thing. Uh, not to mention the fact that there are some shots of this... There's a... Sh there is a shot in this movie that is that is having the two ca two characters facing at each other. All we see are their noses at the edges of the screen, and we're looking at blank space. We're looking at the literal space between these characters. Oh, oh my god! It is mind-bogglingly inept. Like, I, it makes you miss the masterful craftwork of one Tommy Wiseau. Oh, God. At least Tommy Wiseau knew how to light a goddamn shot. Oh, my God. So, yeah. I can't recommend, like, Snow Beast. I would say I would recommend that for like a drunken night with your friends to watch a bad movie and make fun of it and have a laugh, have a larf. I can't in good conscience ask you to sit through this movie. It is also available for free on YouTube. There is no way in hell I would recommend you subject the, yourself to this movie. Not as a joke, not for riffs, not not for a drunken night with your buddies. No, in fact, you should not subject anybody else around you to this movie. It is genuinely that bad. It is one of the worst excuses of, of film that I have seen. No, please do not try and watch this movie. It is not worth it. So yeah, that's all I watched this week. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about AMC and Cineworld shooting themselves in the foot. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together, we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us, Living in the Stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks. If you follow any sort of entertainment outlet, you may have heard about the recent news of AMC and in alongside them, Cineworld, the uh, British chain that owns Regal Cinemas here in the States, basically um, going to war, at, you know, in the corporate sense, uh, with Universal Pictures and saying they're going to boycott all of Universal's future releases after Universal suggested that they might be doing a simultaneous release 
uh, for both VOD and in theaters uh, once the uh, quarantine is 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 uh, over. So I initially thought this was contractual, but from what I read, basically what it comes down to is Universal is rolling, you know, is raking in the success of Trolls World Tour, which has broken VOD records. Like we're talking, like we're talking. I think it's. Let me see. Uh, the um wiki page to see what the uh actual uh not box office but like um you know uh god what is the term uh my brain is farting on me um but like um the, the profits have been um Uh, according to the numbers, uh, it has basically made so far seventy-seven million dollars on VOD, just on VOD, and it cost ninety to hundred million to make. So, not exactly. Yeah, you know, once again, it's not making in. Oh, I, and I don't know how it's doing um, internationally, but domestically, it's already made back almost its entire. Um, its entire, you know, it's almost made back part of it, but you know, its budget just from VOD sales. And it's still, and you know, because VOD isn't exactly like a massive market base, the fact that it did so well has gotten Universal like all giddy about it. Like, look at us, we're making records from Trolls World Tour, we're doing, you know, we made all this kinds of money just from VOD, and so. Uh, the one of the executives over at NBC Universal basically said that you know once this is all over we might actually consider doing a simultaneous release having some on VOD and then releasing it in theaters and this suggestion twisted up the little panties over at AMC and their monocles popped out and they were just like <laughs> how dare you say that you release simultaneously we have the initial rights to distribution how dare you we will not show any universal movies in the wake of this outrageous decision <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of hand wringing and like you know monocle popping over it and of course Cineworld joined in uh, Cineworld being the British co corporation that owns Regal Cinemas, uh, they joined in and saying, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna boycott Universal and your next Jurassic Park movie and the Fast and the Furious movie. We're not gonna get any money from those coming in because you really you because <laughs> you talked about putting more movies on VOD." Oh God! These these I I I'm, and thankfully my local cinema you know not my local Cinemark but like Cinemark has yet to voice their their opinions on the matter. But even here's the funny thing: if we, uh, the uh, the um, the uh, corporate organization that that um, represents uh, theater chains is actually called NATO. It is the National Association of Theater Owners, and they are in charge of like they're like the um, bar you know the uh, body that helps uh, bargain with the with the Hollywood studios in favor of the theater chains, and they're basically kind of like the theater chain the theater 
company union, as it were, and uh, or it, or whatever you would want to call that, uh, bi- you know, business grouping. It's 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 that it's 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 the organization that represents theater owners and theater chains, and so they're the kinds of ones who are constantly working with or are combating with um, Hollywood studios about how much money theater chains can get, and so helping to maintain theater you know theaters being able to function in in the united states and and, um they ultimately said that this universal decision was very clearly driven by extreme circumstances and they're not concerned about universal like circumventing theaters uh, to release direct to VOD anytime soon. I'm guessing they're not going to do that with things like the Fast and the Furious or Jurassic Park. You know, it's probably going to be for things like Blumhouse. And maybe not even Bl- like Blumhouse still makes bank in theaters. So it's probably going to be for things that people aren't going to see in theaters. Indie stuff. And um, yeah, so like it, it's, it's, in fact, what uh, AMC neglects to mention during this whole debacle is that they themselves have a VOD service through their membership program where they can where you can personally rent movies through AMC like it's freaking iTunes and yet they have the nerve to get all up in a tizzy over Universal suggesting that they might simultaneously release movies in theaters and on demand in the future. Oh, how dare they! As though that was—that's not the model that's going to be going and going in the future down the line, anyway. So yeah, it's. What it ultimately comes down to is AMC and Regal and Cineworld are already struggling to stay afloat, and they're they're a bunch of dinosaurs. They're the saddle makers yelling that Henry Ford is taking their gerbs. You know, Henry Ford is ruining our business of saddle making. (laughs) And, um... Yeah, this that's what AMC and Regal is doing, because instead of, you know, improving their theaters and not having so many of them, then... They're complaining that some movies may not go directly to theaters. Oh, oh, perish the thought. Oh, oh, dearie me. <laughs> oh, you poor things. Here, um, here, I think I have it somewhere. Um, let me see. Uh, um, uh, let me see. Uh, oh, uh, here it is. I'm, I'm trying to play the world's smallest violin. It's a bit out of tune. I haven't had to pull this out for a while. But suffice to say that, oh, you poor sweet dears. You mean you're, you massive uh, struggling co- theater corporations can't handle a little, can't handle uh, studios wanting to, you know, have more options? <laughs> oh, you poor dearies. Oh, you poor sweet things. Oh, I feel so sad for you. But, um,. That's the thing is that studios and theaters are kind of all, have been at odds uh, ever since they were they they were separate entities. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but history le- quick history lesson: prior to 1948, the studios owned the theaters where they showed movies. So in order to see a universe, in order to see a Universal movie, you would have to go to a Universal owned theater. And in order to see an MGM movie, you would have to go to an MGM-owned theater. 
And it wasn't until um, United States versus Paramount Pictures, uh, the seven to one decision that the Supreme Court said theater Hollywood studios could not own the theaters that ran their move to run their movies, uh, that there was real like actual. Uh, what's the term? Uh, uh, oh God, what's the term? Teddy Roosevelt did it all the time. Um, oh God, but, but you know there was ba- basically bringing down the monopoly of the theater of the of Hollywood and saying like, nah, you can't just have you know own the rights to just to your own distribution. You gotta you know you. <laughs> That gives you too much control over the thing. You should, you know, you need to relinquish some control, and that's what happened. And and ever and then apparently recently Donald Trump was floating around the idea of you know going around the Supreme Court decision and saying, hey, you know, maybe theaters should own their own chains. Maybe the studios should own their own theaters again, as if he was ever alive when that was a thing. <laughs> what ki- what kind of Ein Randian dumbassery makes you think that that would be a good idea. Anyway, I could go off on a tangent about that, but thankfully it's only I'm only just now hearing about it. So clearly that thought has already passed through his brain and is probably long gone. He probably doesn't even remember saying it by this point. Uh anyway, the the problem ultimately comes down what the problem ultimately comes down to is theaters are struggling in the same way that they did in 1996. Um, I think either, I think it was a locally owned theater chain, a smaller chain of theaters uh, brought this up, or maybe it was somebody else um, in one of the articles I read. In 1996, you saw a rise in multiplexes. And so before, before 1996, most theaters were like single screen old school, just whatever movies came in and they would rotate throughout the film, whatever film stock was playing. Sometime there would be, like, that's the thing. In the 80s, some theaters kept E.T. in for years because it was more profitable just to show E.T. again than to constantly bring in new movies. But as as, as we, you know, people began investing in bigger complex bigger buildings to house more than one screen that's when you saw the rise of multiplexes regal cinemas started popping up around that time amc theaters general cinemas um and so you saw the rise of the multiplex but in 1996 there were so many multiplexes and so many theaters just popping up around the country there was an actual movie theater bubble that burst and there was an actual depression in movie theaters because there were too many screens. There were too many theaters. And somebody said, we're in that same spot again. People can't afford, like, that's the thing. Box office numbers are higher than ever, but that all goes to the studio. And it's not, but attendance has gone way, way down. Profits have gone up because of inflation and because they're charging more to go to theaters. But the attendance has been record level lows for years now. Ever since the two, ever since about 2000, 2001, it's been a it's been a drop in attendance, and yeah, and what it comes down to ultimately is it's expensive as hell to go to the movies. I'm a single dude. I go to the movies by myself. I pay for 
popcorn and the stuff. I make I try to cut corners where I can, and I don't always get concessions. But even then, even with whatever corners I cut to see more than one movie per week in theaters, imagine you're a family of five. Two adults, three kids. Imagine trying... Now, what is the cost of going to the movies? The average price of a movie ticket now is a little under 10 bucks, depending on what time of the day you're seeing it in. So not only do you have to plan around all th- five different schedules, you also have to have at least... to spare just to get in the goddamn door. Maybe even more. Maybe even $55 just to get in the goddamn door. On top of that, you have... The kids are going to want popcorn. They're going to want candy. They're going to want soda. They're going to want something. They're going to want something to put in their face holes while we're watching... While we're watching the new Star Wars or the new Marvel or the new uh, Jurassic Park or something. And so... And on top of that, the concessions, it's going to cost you probably twice that much just to get the concessions for each of you. Even if you, like, even if you get the smallest concessions, that's still like five bucks a piece for each concession item at, at, you know, on average. And in order, and so it just gets more expensive than that from there. So you're thinking like probably 15 bucks if you get a soda and if you get a soda and a popcorn depending on the size. Uh, so that's for each of you. That means that's 50, 75 bucks. You know, if it, you know, on the expensive side of things, just for concessions, if you each get something, maybe you'll share a large tub and cut that down to like, I don't know, 30 bucks. That means you spent 50 bucks, 55 bucks just to get in the door if you're lucky, you may spend another 50 bucks just to get something to eat. Most families, if they are going to theaters, are sneaking stuff in. And I tend not to do that personally because I know my theater chains thrive on the concessions. That's why concessions prices went up because that's where the money is. Theaters don't get theaters get 40% on a good day from a ticket sale. So that means out of the $10 ticket they get four bucks. So that means they have to make up that loss from the concessions. In other countries, they only pay upwards of 40%. They only have to, they, the theaters get actually 60% of the, of the, of the money. So that means, so that means instead of having to cover a 60% loss from the, from the ticket sales, they only have to cover, they only have to cover about a, 40% 40% loss. For some theaters, only a 20% loss because the rest is because that's because they retain most of the ticket sales. And that's why you'll probably see in like the UK or Europe or China or other countries, t- concessions are probably a little bit on the cheaper side because they don't have to make up the loss from paying 60% to the theaters, to the to the studios. You know what's even worse about it is goddamn Disney. That Filthy Mouse takes upwards of 90% of ticket sales, especially for the big name releases like Marvel and Star Wars. And it and so you have to make up a 90% loss of the ticket sales. Of course you're going to jack up pr- the concession prices. That's your only other means of income. So yeah, gee, I wonder why theater chain it's so expensive to go to the theaters anymore because the studios are are just drain you know just squeezing them dry. They take the I anyway, mean, that's the thing. 
Split it 50-50. Like, I don't, like I, it's obvious expensive to make movies, period. Clearly. That's why they're, you know, relying on investment companies from China and all, places that actually have money. But split the sales 50-50. Theaters, theaters get half the ticket sales from the box office. Studio get the other half. And that, and then they don't have the, that way you can drive down the price of concessions and then hopefully that'll entice more people to come in. I don't know. That's just my proposal. But the other problem is not to get too, um, socialist on you as, uh, uh, that's as the uh, USSR national anthem starts, uh, playing in the background and increasing in volume, um, the wages of the workers have remained stagnant. So it co- so not only does it cost more to go to the theaters, average families can't afford going to the theater. It is a luxury beyond their budget. So no wonder attendance is down because there's no there's no disposable income, you dumbasses. If you want that's why I was talking to my mom about it this weekend. All these Companies that say millennials are killing X industry. All that basically means is millennials have no goddamn money. So they're not spending it on mindless luxuries like going to freaking Applebee's. They're staying in it cooking at home. Or they're buying cheaper food. Because they don't have the money to spare. You assholes. And millennials aren't killing anything. You kept our wages low and you raised your own... And the exec, While the executives raised their own... In, <laughs> their own... Uh, salaries and so gee all the money is coalesced at the top and it's all toppling over who could have possibly foreseen that coming uh, pyramids don't don't start at a point for the for this very reason it's why you have a big base you have a massive base to support the top assholes jesus sorry um I went off on a bit of a rant there because that's ultimately what it comes down to is AMC and Cineworld are fighting for a dying, for for a dying chain, for a dying like luxury that people can't afford to go to. So instead of fighting with the studios for wanting to release direct to video, which is where the people are, maybe theaters should be, I don't know, lobbying Congress for higher wages. Just a thought. If you're so concerned about us spending money at your place of business, how about you give us some money to spend? Just a thought. It just happened to come to mind. That's all I'm saying. Uh, so yeah, um, so yeah, I would not be surprised if, like in 1996, we saw a massive bubble burst from the number of theaters that are going unattended by audiences they can't afford to go to theaters. So now, that's the other thing, too. One thing you constantly hear from people going to the mov- who don't go to the movies, what do they always say? There's some asshole on their phone. There's some kid who won't shut up. There's some, teenager, there's some teenagers talking over the whole thing. The movie-going experience has not only become more expensive, but it's more expensive without the luxury. There's no reason you should be paying a hundred bucks for your family of five to go see a movie and get, and there's some asshole on his phone the whole goddamn time. 
So there's a bright screen shining in your face and you can't see the big screen that, that you should be paying attention to. See, this is why I would love an Alamo Draft House in my part of town. Well, in my state. I would love Akron, Cleveland to get an Alamo Draft House. Because that's the thing. The Alamo Draft House has been the front runner of improving the theater going experience. And if you're from Austin, Texas, you can avow this day, you know, until the cows come home. Alamo Draft House has made the movie going experience fun again. They allow for alcohol sales. They allow for actual cooked food. They make sure that you keep your phone in your car. You don't get to take your phone into the theater. They, and, you make, and they make sure that if you're making a big deal, you know, if there's something distracting the audience from, an, from a good movie-going experience, they, t- they take care of that. Cinemark has been good about that. I will say this. My Cinemark-going experience has been phenomenal. And... I, what's interesting is that cinema, the, um, the, the, what, what, what used to be the local dollar theater Cinemark down in Canton, Ohio, has since become a luxury high-end out serving alcohol and cooked food, um, Cinemark, like a luxury Cinemark. Part of me thinks that's kind of sad because there was a nice, it was nice to have a dollar theater so that families could pay only a dollar to see movies that were about to come to video anyway. But I guess if the market, if they figure the market in Canton was there to have a luxury theater, they they wouldn't have done it. So it's, it's a nice theater too. I'll say that much. It's, a, it's like they got the nice recliners and it's just a genuinely really cool theater to go to. I just, you know, wish they didn't, I just wish they built onto the existing luxury theater that they already have like a, less than a mile away to do it and kept the dollar theater. But that's just me. At any rate, uh, yeah, if, you, if theater chains want people to come to them, they have to make ensure that people are getting a good experience when they come to that theater. Cinemark, my local Cinemark has been phenomenal about that. In fact, most of my Cinemark, most of the Cinemarks I've gone to have been good about that. Most of the Cinemarks I go to, I've never had a real issue with audiences. The only time I've really had trouble with audiences has always been at Regal's. Regal does not give a give a shit. And it's any wonder that they're the ones complaining to the studios and not Cinemark, who realize who who I'm assuming, hopefully at the top, realize, yeah. Maybe we should work on make, making people want to come to our theaters instead of complaining that you're sending Trolls 2 to video first. And you're probably going to simultaneously release. Cinemark's not worried about that. Because they would rather have you come to the theater for a reason rather than just you could sit... You know, they want you to come to the theater because you can't get the same experience at home. And that's the thing. Unless you can afford a 90-foot screen in your house with with surround sound and all the you know all the fancy accoutrement that you get from going to a movie theater most people are can't you know aren't going to get the exact experience that said if you're still dealing with assholes at the movie theater there's there's you're probably not going to come back so you have to make sure that the theater going experience is good for the people coming there which is why I say I want an Alamo Draft House, but thankfully the Cinemark will have. Thankfully the Cinemark will do just fine. And in fact, I would like to keep it that way, but some for some reason, um, Cinemark won't take some of the movies. I, I don't get it either. But at any rate, uh, yeah, people need disposable income, 
and they need the time to do it. So they need higher wages and shorter work weeks. That's the best way to give people the opportunity to spend money at a movie theater. Do the, you know, make it easier for the workers to go to the, to enjoy the luxury of going to the theater and they will come enjoy the time at the theater. If we're just barely making it by and, and we, and we, we decide to just stay at home, watch Netflix instead of trying to sit through a movie we may or may not like with some asshole on his phone and some kid and two kids, you know, making noise throughout, making noise during the whole thing. Yeah. Maybe I don't want to, maybe it's, maybe I'm not gonna come back to your theater. So yeah, maybe make going to the theater a good experience first and foremost. I don't know. Also TSA check-ins won't help. Just stay closed. Seriously. Theater chains are talking about putting in TSA style check-ins for when you go to the theaters so that they can open up early. How about you just stay closed until we can sit within six feet of each other? You, you twits. I get it. You're struggling. You can have the studios hold on for a second. You know, get, you know, some kind of like, you know, or have a government, you know, if there's, you know, instead of bailing out like businesses that are doing just fine anyway, maybe have, maybe have some of those, you know, surplus dollars as like a means for, to keep uh studio, you know, these theaters with, from going bankrupt in the meantime, because apparently they've run themselves on the ground anyway. I don't know. I don't know. Personally, per, per, personally, it's just, this is all sort of a cluster, cluster mess. I almost said I almost said the one word I don't want to say on the show, but it's just yeah. Trying to open early isn't going to make things better. It's actually going to make things worse because the close proximity of your of your seats is is still is only going to help spread the virus. Just stay close until most until the worst of it is gone. When we can be within six feet of each other, then you can open the theaters. How about that? We don't need TSA style check-ins to see the new Fast and Furious. No, no, that would make me want to see the movie even less. About to go through a go through the TSA style check-in to watch the latest Blumhouse disaster. No. I'm just gonna stay home. So yeah, just, 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 hold, just stay closed until the worst of it goes over, and stop trying to shoot yourselves in the foot over Trolls World Tour. You dumbasses. So yeah, that's that's my rant for the week. Pay pay the workers more so we can spend money on theaters. That's what you if you want us to. Do, if you want us to go to the theater so bad, give us better wages. Anyway, um, big stuff. So the big stuff coming out uh, week this week of uh, May is the Jesus. Oh no! Oh, so um, one thing coming to video this week is John Turturro's written and directed spinoff from The Big Lebowski, called The Jesus Rolls. So that's coming. Uh, so that should be fun. Uh, we've also got The Lodge. Once again, I do not recommend that. Uh, Universal is releasing Ordinary Love, which doesn't sound familiar at all. Um, 
Oh, it's a cancer one. Uh, it's a cancer uh, drama about uh, with um from Bleecker Street. It's uh, Liam Neeson and Leslie Manville as this uh, older couple and the wife start was diagnosed with cancer and it's all about their their relationship in the mid, in the midst of all that it seems really sweet um the other big one is called greed from sony and it doesn't sound oh wait is that the oh oh no i know this one this is the um this is uh steve coogan it's got isla fisher in it and a uh, bunch of names i don't recognize but um, basically, he's a self-made billionaire, and it's all about you know uh, luxury and excess. And uh, I think it's all it all eventually comes crashing down because of because of all the excess. And it's basically uh, here we go: satire and the grotesque inequality of wealth in the fashion industry. And um, yeah, apparently, it it go it watches the rise and fall of this character of this caricature through his biographer. So. Uh, played by David Mitchell, who does not sound familiar. David Mitchell, best known for Cloud Atlas. And, uh, what else? That's it. Cloud Atlas. Huh. Weird. Anyway, uh, so that's coming out in a uh, video this week. And, uh, it's coming out on Netflix, uh, on, fr during, on Friday. That's the other thing is you've got the DVD stuff on Tuesday, but then all the, all the Netflix stuff comes out on like the middle of the week or Friday. Uh, How to build a girl from IFC Video. Oh, uh, that's the that's the one with uh, what's her name from Booksmart, um, Beanie Feldstein. Uh, that's a whole. There's it's like a biopic about this uh, 16 year old girl who. Light, who kind of like falsifies her way into becoming a rock reporter. No idea if it's going to, if it's going to be how based on reality it is, but it looked like fun. Uh, Spaceship Earth from Neon. Let me see. I don't think there's any relation to the, um, to the, uh, oh no, it's a documentary. But I don't think it's about the actual spaceship Earth from um, from Disney World, from Epcot. But apparently, uh, there's these uh, they had built the biosphere in 1991, and they, it was basically it seemed like okay, so this must have been like the thing that happened that led to that inspired Biodome, um, power of small groups reimagining the world. It's, okay, so that might be something. Check out that's from Neon. Uh, they're, they're a usual good name for distributors. Oh, God, the Valley Girl remake is coming out. Oh, no. Uh, Walk Away Joe. Doesn't sound familiar. Uh, story of an unlikely friendship. Young boy searching for his father in pool halls. Uh, bah, 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 starring David Strathairn and Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Ooh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. So... I don't know. I'll have to take a look at that. We'll see if that's available. That's from uh, Quiver. I'm not familiar with. Uh, some seasons on Netflix. Restaurants on the Edge. Rust Valley Restorers. Solar Opposites on Hulu. Uh, the Eddie, which doesn't have a link. Um, and then Universal is also releasing Not Safe for Work this week, which is... What? 
the heck is that poster? Let me see. It doesn't list a plot detail, and it says Michael Gladys is... Uh, oh, God, I have to go to IMDb for this one. The numbers has, like, no details on it. Not say for... Oh, okay. Wait a second. The heck? Universal Home Entertainment 2020. But but the one I'm looking at on IMDb says 2014. I'm confused. It's also directed by Joe Johnston, who did Jurassic Park 3 and The Rocketeer and Captain America the First Avenger. So, apparently he did a movie back in 2014 that is only just now getting, like, a major release. Maybe that's, like, a special VOD Blu-ray release or something like that. Because it looks, like, really cheap, low budget here. Let me see if IMDb... Ambitious legal assistant works at a... uh, Attorneys and secretly dates the the gorgeous clerk. Presented two major cases. Uh... Against a powerful corporation, a mafia family. Uh, releases all the employees early on an afternoon and also fires time for snooping around the mafia case. Sees a man leaving the suitcase on the floor. Another man wearing a suit talk, taking the suitcase and going to the 34th floor. Man is actually a hitman. Something about... Okay, so some weird thing about... Supposed to be released in 2012. So why is it saying 2020? Over on the numbers. Huh. Weird. Anyway. So that's apparently coming out. Um, on I guess like Blu-ray home video or something. So uh, that's what to look for. Look, that's what to look for this week. Uh, I'll see what all's on uh, Hulu and uh, Netflix. For next week. For, for, the, for the week to come. But uh, yeah. That about does it for this week's episode. Which means. It is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. If you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by by uh, finding us, by uh, favoriting us on your web browser and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. While you're here, check out some of our other fine programming. We released our latest episode of Living in the Stacks, a uh, belated April episode uh, where I reviewed my buddy Jim's book, Champagne uh, Brunt of the Insectivores. Yes, if that now that title alone should have hooked you in, but if not, it's also very in, very inspired by Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett and the like. So if that's your taste, go read the book on Kindle Unlimited and go check out our episode on it too, because we got an interview. Well, I got I got to interview him too, and it was really interesting to uh, pick his brain about the book, which we all loved. And then um, we're also going to do something new for that show. We're going to try and in the in the wake of everything going on we're going to try and do mini-sodes instead of regularly scheduled episodes so we're going to stay tuned for that and uh uh we'll keep you and we'll keep you posted on uh, what's going on also uh coming this wednesday is going to be a new episode of dungeons and dragon types where we go from fighting zubat to fighting woobat because we're in a cave and you can keep up to date with, uh, uh, and don't forget to check out all of our other good stuff. Uh, Once more with feeling, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, the Snark Cast, the Family Business, and if you yourself are a podcaster and would love to join our fledging little family, you can do so by sending all your inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. 
Uh, you can also find this show on your various podcast providers, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio. And if you want to help us out, leave a five-star rating review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also check us out on social media, facebook.com slash popcornjunkie, Twitter at cornjunkiepod. I've been really neglectful on that. Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast. This is basically dead right now. Uh, Letterboxd is where I'm most active. Cornjunkiepod on Letterboxd. That's Letterboxd with a D. And I'm trying to get back on uh, st- uh, Stardust, but it's been it's been it's been something. And, you know, I'm so used to just doing it in the car after a movie. I need to find a like a way to get those reviews in um, while I'm at home. But uh, I'm gonna. But you can also follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie, and you can also send all, send everything to um, Popcorn Junkie podcast suggestions for stuff. Uh, your thoughts on what I reviewed. Uh, you can also you know be sure to you know. Comment on stuff on social media. Let you know. Let me know what you think is of what I covered, and you know if you if you have any suggestions for the show or anything like that, constructive stuff. Um, and if you can help out, what's it, what's interesting is that uh, I think it was was it Daniel Ibertson's video that I watched. Basically, um, whoever videos I watched. Uh, Basically said that their Patreon and Kickstarter are seeing a massive downturn because people don't have the free money to spend. So I get it. If you don't have any free money to spare, don't worry about it. But if you get some money coming in in the time, you know, as as you know, we make it make it through this thing, and you want to help out this show, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon at Patreon.com/popcornjunkie. And there's while you're there, you've got ten episodes each of Make a Better Movie, where I try to make a better movie, make a better version of a movie, as well as the Munch Along, which is basically riff tracks. You can watch a movie with me. And uh, if you want more of those or some new stuff to try, I have some thoughts that I want to try out. Uh, I would love to do an entire series of just watching, sitting through the Asylum movies, but I'm not going to do that for free. I need to know that people are paying attention to those reviews. So, uh, yeah, if there's anything, you know, if you want to support the show that way, you can. Otherwise, just share us on social media. Let people know that, you know, let people know that you like this show and that they should check it out. Uh, that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and we're going to make it through this year if it kills us. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. <laughs>